welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, September 4th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 to 38. In today's text, the Lord continues to give priestly regulations governing specific sacrifices. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Absolutely. So happy to be here. Thanks for bringing me back. So as we get started today, Pastor Jones, talk to us about the book of Leviticus. What should we know as we prepare to look at chapter 7 today? Sure. Uh, Leviticus uh, details the worship rites, sacrificial practices, dietary laws, and priestly duties of God's people, the things that the Lord is is giving Moses on Mount Sinai and then is brought down to the people to help organize their lives as they live in community as God's people. Um, there's a lot of things in it that seem odd and strange to us because we are so separated from it by time and space, but it's still valuable for us. And I know we're going to get some interesting insights and, and good things today. But overall, the book is an extremely underused book um, within our lectionary cycle. That's how most of us get into God's Word is through those lectionary readings. But as you look through those cycles, we've got four years of it, the three-year cycle and then the one-year cycle. And even if we include the, the festival selections, Leviticus only appears three times, and twice in series A and once in series C. And all three of those occurrences utilize the same section of Leviticus 19, which deals with how God's people should treat one another um, with an understanding of God's love and justice. So there you go. Um, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be surprised given the content of Leviticus. Uh, the Hebrew Levitical system of sacrifice doesn't necessarily yield easy applications for our modern Christian lives. But that being said, we will definitely be seeing some echoes of the Levitical rites still present in our worship services uh, today. Yeah, so in chapter 7, we're going to continue this longer section within the book of Leviticus. Chapters 1 through 7 really deal with the variety of sacrifices that the Lord gives to his people. And as we saw yesterday in chapter 6, there was a, a bit of a transition from the Lord through Moses giving to his people instructions for the sacrifices to now in the end of 6 and all of, most of chapter 7, talking more specifically to the priests about how they go about their job and their roles within those sacrifices. So we're going to be 
in familiar territory from what we've read already in the book of Leviticus, and, and really coming to an end of, of a section within the book before we transition then into the ordination of Aaron and his sons and the beginning of the divine service in the, in the next couple chapters after that. Any other, other thoughts on, on what we'll encounter, what we've encountered so far in, in Leviticus today? Um, no, I think you got it there. The, the book is set up into different sections, and we're, we're kind of at the tail end of the general instructions on the various types of sacrifice. We'll look at uh, a couple of them specifically today, and then uh, it'll sort of end with the different portions of those sacrifices, how they're to be used, how they're not to be used, when they should be uh, consumed and things like that. And then, yeah, the next chapter goes on to some different aspects. All right, so we get Leviticus chapter 7 today. This is the text beginning at the first verse. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity." Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some of the flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, 
and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. That is our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 7. Verses 1 to 38. All right, Pastor Jones. So we've got, again, a variety of offerings that are described in greater detail. Really, you've got the guilt offering, the peace offerings that are the primary two, with some other details sprinkled in. Let's talk about the guilt offering that begins the chapter. Uh, Help us to see what the Lord says here. Sure. So the guilt offering, and sometimes it's called a reparation offering, both names get at its purpose. It's for restoring a relationship with God after some type of, of sacrilege has been committed. The acceptable offering in these instances is a ram, and the person is offering the ram, uh, or who's offering the ram, they're, they're bringing compensation for the sins of defiling something holy. That's the that's the idea of sacrilege. And so guilt or reparation gets right at the the heart of what they're trying to do here. Um, What would be an example of such sacrilege of defilement in this case? It would be something like, you know, failing to uphold a vow or, or maybe even something like perjury. When you do that, you are defiling God's holy name. You are lowering something that is of the utmost uh, importance. Uh, another exa- example might be uh, coming into contact with a dead body. This is making you, your person unclean. Uh, so you're defiling your holy status as a member of God's people, as an Israelite. You are supposed to be uh, cleaner, ritually more pure than that. And so you need to bring some offering as well as there'll be you know, a time outside the camp, a time of cutoff from the people. To, to bring you back up to that standard of, of holiness that is expected from you. So that's the guilt offering. Um, the idea 
behind it is really seeking restoration by eliminating your guilt um, from bringing some defilement upon a holy item of God's. The transgressors in this case uh, have made themselves ritually unclean, and so they must restore that proper cleanliness. All right, so that's the, the guilt offering, and we've read about those already in the book of Leviticus. We get further instructions here. The, the one thing that, that stands yeah. out as is, is the Lord gives further instructions is that we, we find out a little bit about the process of the, you know, how, what is put where in terms of what gets removed from the animal. That wasn't included in the, the instructions for the guilt offering previously, but we find out here it's very much like the sin offering. In this case, the guilt offering is said that is most holy, and that's said twice, both in verse 1 and in verse 6. Talk to us about the significance of that label. Yeah, well, this is getting right at the the heart of of God's separateness from creation, right? The holiness, uh, that heaviness, that importance of who he is, and he has bestowed that onto his people and the things that he designates for his people. And so the full importance that importance and the, the full sacredness of what's happening here is is emphasized by that repetition, right? It is most holy. This is about the removal of guilt. This is about the restoration of you as God's chosen, God's set-aside people. Um, it's, it's of the he- absolute most important aspect of, of who they are in the sight of God and who God is to be in their sight. And so they, they give these special instructions. It's, it's, it's interesting that the different aspects of the animal are used for different purposes here. First, the blood is mentioned as being thrown against the sides of the altar. And I immediately hear Hebrews uh, what, chapter 9, um, without blood there is no forgiveness. And then again, later in the book of Leviticus, the idea that the life is in the blood here it really shows the cost of atonement. It takes a life to restore a life. That's, that's what the blood part is about. And then separating out the fat, that is specially set aside for God. Uh, this, again, due to the nature of the offense. In an offense of defilement, the, the sin there, it might include another person in some regard, like a lack of trust if it was a perjury or, or breaking a vow type thing. But really, the infraction is directly against God. You have diminished uh, his ho- God's holy name uh, or his word by your action, and so you need to make right with God for that. Uh, the, because you are uh, sinning against God, it requires remuneration and amends that restore that holiness between you and God again. Um, that's why the offering is most holy, and why the best portions, the fat portions, right, that tasty fat of the animal, uh, it's offered directly to God. The best parts of the animal are the most holy, and so they go to the most important, the most holy one in the relationship. The rest of the sacrifice, then, the meat portions, are given to the priests to consume. Mm. We'll talk, talk more about that aspect. We've seen this previously in the book of Leviticus, the priests are given parts of some sacrifices, not all of them. Some yep. sacrifices yep. are consumed completely. This is one where the priests have a share in it. Talk about what's revealed here in chapter 7 concerning that. Right. So the sharing of sacrifices with the priests, uh, again, yes, touched upon here, and we see it elsewhere as well. Uh, and we'll see it again toward the end of the, the passage here, towards the end of the chapter. But this allotment for the priests is the Levitical share in the distribution of the promised land. The priests and the Levites 
and all the priests are Levites, right? They all come out of the tribe of Levi. They are set aside as the ones serving in the tabernacle, and later it will be in the temple. They do not receive part of the land, but instead are those who serve the people on behalf of the Lord. They care for the tabernacle, they're offering the sacrifices, they are exchanging any money that needs to be converted to livestock or grain for the offerings. This was their role for the people. And so God provides for them from the offerings of the people. And he's providing for the people, and through that, he's providing now for his priests who are bringing God's gifts, God's blessings to the people. And the arrangement for pastors and priests in the Christian church today is still modeled very much on this practice. We get our living by the gospel, as Paul describes it. We are the ones set aside to deliver God's blessings to the people, and that is reflected then in how we are taken care of. Mm, yeah, th just from this, those brief verses here in this section, a couple of things that, that stood out to me. And this has happened before, where the priest who actually does the, the work of the sacrifice, there are specific gifts that are for him that then he can, he can yes. share with his fellow priests. But, but there are some that are singled out for their particular role within a sacrifice. And then the other thing that, that stood out to me in this case was in verse, where did it go? Eight, where that the, the one who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he's offered. I, yeah. I never really thought about that. I mean, the food aspect and the eating of the offerings had always been something I thought about, but never the aspect of, well, what about the skin and providing clothing? It's just, yep. I, I love it. <laughs> yep. Every aspect taken care of God is, is figuring out how to use the gifts of creation itself to provide for his people in a total aspect. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Nothing's going to waste. Everything's being used for a purpose, and it's all working together within the community that God has created. And then those specific pieces, that's very much like the honorariums that pastors will receive today. You do the wedding, you do the baptism, someone's going to give you specifically the gift for that. Yeah, that's right. So... With those things in mind, we've got the matter of the guilt offering taken care of here in the first part of Leviticus 7. Then Moses transitions, the Lord through Moses continues to give instructions, and now really the rest of the chapter is going to deal more with the peace offerings than anything else. So starting in verse 11, what do we find out now about peace offerings? Yeah, so as you said, we're moving into a, a different type of offering here, the same formulaic opening is presented to clearly delineate the different sacrifices, right? In this case, this is the law of the sacrifice of, and now we're going to peace offerings. Um, the sacrifice for the peace offering would be a little bit different. For the guilt offering, it was a ram. This time it's a, a bull or a cow, but a sheep or a goat are also acceptable. Uh, and part of the purpose of the peace offering is to denote that fellowship or communion with God and his people, the Israelites. So there's also a, another communal aspect here. There's not just the, it's not just about the animal being offered. There's also different types of bread that are offered, and then a, a meal will, will be the result. So three kinds uh, of peace offering are done a little bit differently, but these are the reasons why someone would bring a peace offering. It could be one of thanksgiving, it could be one of fulfilling a vow, and then there are those that freely dedicate themselves to God in response to his blessings. So they've seen such a wonderful gift from God that they're now going to 
uh, dedicate a specific act or a specific aspect of their lives to service for him. And this uh, offering would be a part of that. The peace offering of thanksgiving is what they specifically get into and is mentioned in verse 12 here. So as Moses receives these instructions concerning the peace offering of thanksgiving, we find out about what is offered and how it is going to be eaten. Right. There's, there's different types of bread that are offered, and the thing that stands out the most to me is the fact that one of them is actually a leavened loaf of bread. That was, yeah. That's something we don't encounter very often at all in the Scriptures, but here is <laughs> one example of it. Yeah, yeah. So three unleavened—this offering comes with four kinds of bread, three unleavened and one leavened, and loaves of— Each of the breads are given to the priest who assisted with the offering and portions were for that fellowship meal that I mentioned in response to God's forgiveness and blessings that are being granted in the offering. But that, yeah, that that leavened bread, there's only one other place that I saw comments on where that happens in the tabernacle or temple worship, and that's during the the Feast of Weeks, I believe, um, which I do not know enough of my Old Testament uh, festival cycles to go into a lot of details, but I believe that's the precursor, or that is what will become Pentecost, right? the, the weeks yeah. leading up after after Passover. Um, and so that's interesting, uh, the leavened bread there. And, you know, I've done, I've done a little bit of baking. I wouldn't say I'm ready to compete on Great British Bake Off or anything, but... Um, <laughs> You're American. The... Yeah, well, that's true too. Uh, that show <laughs> failed. Um, the, when we talk about the leavened bread, it's usually about a time thing, right? You let the yeast do its thing and rise the bread. But there's actually, I suppose, hasty breads that uh, that do rise, and you use like baking soda uh, as a rising agent. So it's interesting to me, like, so when we're talking about unleavened bread, are we really just getting back to that Passover? We need to go. We need to get out of, out of Egypt because God has delivered us in a wonderful and awe-filled way, or is it about the thing itself? Um, and so I don't know. Just interesting. Is this could this have been? Could there have been soda breads involved, or is this always flatbread? Well, and maybe this is one of those cases in the book of Leviticus where you you see that, and and it seems like every other case, it's always unleavened, and there are very specific prohibitions against leavened bread in other cases. Right. Back in in chapter 2 with the grain offerings, the Lord was very specific there that you're not going to burn any leavened bread. He, He does say you can give leavened bread as a first fruits offering, and that's probably going to the Feast mm-hmm. of Weeks thing, but but no yeah. other time. So and but maybe the maybe the thing to to get from this is is ultimately when the Lord authorizes a certain type of gift, you give it, and when the Lord prohibits yes. a certain type of gift, you don't give it. And right. and the reasoning might not always be clear to us, but the fact that He has given His word is what determines what is good and what is bad. That's exactly right. Um, and actually, I think we can get into that a little bit later as we get into some of these prohibitions and how that set Israel as, apart as well. But yeah, no, it's just a goofy question. Well, uh, and I, I understand. That. And I, I mean, those are the yeah, type, yeah. types of things that do make the book of Leviticus a, a real joy to read as you, you get into some of those details yeah. and really think about them. It's really a joy. So with yeah. that bit of an aside past us now, Keep going through this matter of the peace offering and, and what's brought and what's eaten and where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, as I said, you get the different types of bread, and these are 
part of those are given to the priests to eat, and then the rest of them are used uh, to facilitate a, a, a meal, right? So the sacrifices weren't just about the animals and the burning of flesh. There's also, with the thank offering, uh, there is a song of thanksgiving that is sung, and then a, a communal meal of thanksgiving. Um, the people are interacting with, with what's being done. The interaction is facilitated by the priests, um, but the people are very much a part of what's going on. This offering that they're bringing is to restore their relationship with God or to make a statement about their relationship with God. And so they are very much a part of it. Um, the activities, so what I'm getting at is the activities of the tabernacle and later the temple and the worship lives of the people, they were participatory. They, there were times of fellowship as God's holy nation was experiencing the Lord's provision and blessing in their lives, both, both personally and communally. And that's a very important aspect of our worship even today, which is, is, is great. So we're looking back and God is setting those things in motion, you know, three and a half millennia ago for what we are still experiencing today as his people. But then that restriction piece on here is, is interesting too. So the restriction placed on Israel's consumption of the sacrifices distinguishes their identity as the people of Yahweh. There were other nations, Babylon and Mesopotamia we know for sure, that had some prohibitions about eating certain animals. Uh, sometimes that was mainly due to specific festivals that they'd be celebrating. They couldn't eat pork during a specific festival. And then I believe Babylon specifically, they did not eat cow because one of their deities had a bovine appearance. And so that would have been anathema, right? Um, but this, so there are other cultures in the ancient Near East that had some of these types of restrictions. But as far as I've seen from some of the very limited um, studies I've done, there's no other nation that has time limits on the consumption uh, these details about when the sacrifices had to be consumed appear to be a distinctively Hebrew feature. And the timely aspect of consuming the burnt offering serves to more firmly connect God's blessing of provision with the act of eating, right? You're actually receiving the provision connected to the time in which you're offering it. So it, it makes that concrete connection for the people. But it would also help protect the people from consuming food that could harm them as it's been spoiled. Right? You don't want to eat old meat, uh, and even breads can spoil if they're, they're, they're left too long. And this is a, an important piece I think we, we sometimes gloss over. Uh, it's been my understanding that every time God has a command, it's not just about fulfilling or not doing an action. There's an aspect of protection or, or blessing connected to it. And we can talk about some of those things later on too, but that's what, what I think is is behind some of this. Sure, sure. And I think that the time limit also, in, in addition to distinguishing the Israelite worship, also might be a reminder of, of where the holiness actually comes from. The holiness is always the gift of God. And so you're not going right. to try to save some of this meat as if it's holy in and of itself, <laughs> right? It's, it's holy right. because God has given it to you for this specific yes. purpose. So use it for that and don't yeah. try to make it into some sort of magic source of its own holiness. It, the holiness always comes as a gift right. from God. Right, the hocus pocus. 
something like that. Yeah, I, I think the, that I think that maybe the, is, is the Middle part Ages. Of the they would try to. Yeah, yeah. You eat it within the presence of the holiness that is being transferred, and then uh, yeah. Otherwise, you're turning it into a superstitious, you know, magical element. You hear right. the stories from the Middle Ages of people. Um, saving the the wafer or the bread from communion and trying to sprinkle it in their crops to 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 bless their crops and things like that. It's like you you've misunderstood right. what this was for and who this was for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Always keeping it connected to the God who is holy, who graciously gives His holiness to His people. We're going to keep looking at that right. thought and other aspects of Leviticus seven on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Rick Jones this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 4th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 to 38 with Pastor Rick Jones. He is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, we're talking about the, the peace offering. We looked at the matter of when it needs to be eaten. In verse 19, then, that's about where we left off. The matter of who gets to participate and the cleanliness of those participating comes into view. Talk about this matter of clean and unclean and how it factors in into this section. Right. So the, the base word used here for clean or unclean in these contexts throughout Scripture is associated with the idea of ritual purity. Uh, the idea seems to convey one of, of purity as an untainted or unmixed with lesser things. Uh, I think an easy analogy for most people would be of gold, pure gold with no imperfections, nothing else mixed with it is 24 karat gold. However, there are some fragility issues when you have pure gold. It's very soft. And so we often will mix it with things like zinc or, or nickel. And this will then, depending about upon how much is mixed with it, it becomes 18 karat gold or 14 karat gold, or sometimes you'll even see 10 karat gold. It's diminishing the pureness of the gold by bringing lesser elements into it. You might get for practical purposes for jewelry, a stronger result, but it's also less valuable. It's less worthy of that, um, that to be that gift of, of glory and honor. And so I think that's sort of what's going on here. Uh, the people are the less pure gold as they come into things that make them unclean. 
Uh, it's less pure. It's not as valuable. So the principle behind, uh, as we apply it to God's people, coming into contact with unclean items or situation brings an aspect of unworthiness upon them as they need to be then cut off from the people, separated from the community, so their uncleanness cannot spread, similar to the idea of a quarantine, right? You separate the dangerous individual until it is safe for them to interact with others. So whatever illness uh, doesn't spread, it doesn't contaminate others. That's, uh, that's kind of the idea behind cleanness, but then we see it applied in a different way to the animals, that idea of kosher, that the, it needs to be clean to eat. Many laws in Leviticus and maybe especially these cleanliness laws, these kosher laws, seem to focus on the spiritual well-being of a specific identity of God's people. But there always, I believe, needs to be a tangible benefit as well. Sometimes the command from God uh, is hard for us to fully comprehend, but he is a God of love. So there's always an aspect of care and concern in his instruction. So, for example, the animals that are considered unclean have some behavior or characteristic that is more likely to make someone ill. Pork is much more likely to cause food poisoning if it is not very properly prepared. Likewise, shellfish are bottom-feeding scavengers. They eat dead things on the bottom of the ocean, and so they'd be more likely to carry illnesses. So there is a much greater risk also of allergies with shellfish than other sources of meat. And so there's these protective aspects on it. Now, obviously, not all of them apply one for one in our modern um, age and things like that. But you can see these aspects to these things. I think the prohibition against drinking blood and eating the fat can also be viewed through this lens as well. Uh, this particular prohibition is perhaps a bit more faceted than the blanket clean or unclean status of some of those animals. But uh, when we look at the idea of what happens with blood and what's transmitted through blood, I think it makes sense, right? It's true that many diseases can be transmitted spe specifically through blood and fat is the type of tissue that will store those things much longer. Um, they're more, they'd be more susceptible to get sick from eating the blood and the fat of the animal than they would from the meat. However, there's also that aspect of this is still the best part of the animal, right? It's the tastiest part. And so at this time, it's set aside and reserved specifically for God. But I think as it's also protecting them, you could see that as the intervention part of God acting in their favor as well. Um, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, this is the part that I think really sets the Hebrews apart as well, though, because in other cultures, they would have been encouraged to drink the blood. They would have been encouraged to eat the fat as that is the best part of the animal. The people are going to consume it. They want to consume it. And uh, again, that idea that the life source and the power of the animal is in the blood. And so consuming that was what you wanted. You wanted to gain that from the animal. The prohibiting of Israel from drinking blood and eating fat not only provided them a protection of their health, it also distinguished them from their pagan neighbors. This was part of God setting the whole nation apart. They would be different from all the other peoples because of what God was doing through them with his covenant. They needed to be different to highlight the plan of salvation. This people is different. Their God is different. They have a promise. They are shining forth for all the nations. And so even in these things that we might think silly or, or weird or just archaic or not quite understand, there's, there's those aspects to them. 
Yeah, for sure. And even within the the matter of the discussion of the fat, where the Lord does make that uh, exception, or he, he points out a particular situation where you come across an animal that's just died on its own, or an animal that's been right. torn to beasts, you can use that fat for other purposes, like maybe using the, the oil as fuel, or for polishing, yep. or something like that, Exactly. but you just yeah. don't eat it, right? And that's the distinction that the Lord is giving. Mm-hmm. Once again, showing that His, his yep. Word is setting what is good and bad for His people, and often with very practical purposes, as is in the case, especially, you know, with that fat of the animal that's just died on its own. Sure, if you want to use it for another thing, go ahead, but don't eat it. That's yep. where the Lord sets the limit. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah. So in, in verse 28, then, the Lord again specifies we're talking about peace offerings, mm-hmm. and we come to, to more specific instructions about particular parts of the animal, what belongs to certain priests, and, and things like that. Uh, take us into those those verses where we get into you know, some parts of butchering animals that maybe we're not as familiar with. Uh, help us into to verses 28 and following. Yeah. Uh, so some very specific instructions on how the peace offering is to be performed. Uh, it says the fat of the animal and the breast of the animal are to be brought and waved. Uh, it's called a wave offering, not something that we we hear about too often. Uh, but what was interesting about it is, yeah, the the fat and those the the organs or the entrails would be presented in basically the the chest cavity where you would get the breast meat off of the, the, the rib cage that's presented. They separate it out to then burn the fat and the, the entrails, but that breast that was presented gets set aside for the priest. What the wave motion is would be holding, holding the, the breast with the fat in it. Um, you'd, you'd hold it in front of yourself and push it horizontally forward away from your chest towards the altar, and then you would bring it back, thus waving it horizontally. Uh, the idea, the one that uh, I think is the best explanation, but I think that just means I liked it the best, uh, for what this would symbolize would be it's transferring from um, human hands, human possession, into God's domain, God's possession. Um that uh, that seems to, to be a nice symbolic gesture there. Um, it was returning, so that, that transfer, that symbolic transfer is returning the gifts of, that God had provided back to God. And God would then use those gifts to provide again for his people as the priests were given these sacrifices as their source of nourishment. I did see one comment that said, yeah, and then the thigh was elevated vertically in a different type of wave Thus, the Old Testament sacrifice had a horizontal and a vertical component, and they're trying to say that's prefiguring the cross. I think that might be pushing it a little far with the interpretation, but there you go. It's 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 possibilities, I suppose. Sure. And then that that breast meat that, yeah. yeah. Well, I just to the matter of the idea so, of, the, of the wave or the the presenting to God, I think you you see something. Mm-hmm. Assuming that's what we are to picture here. There is something similar that happens in many Christian worship services with, you know, maybe the offering yeah. plates, where when the, the yes. pastor brings them forward, you see him often extend that toward toward the altar, and then those offerings are received back as for the use of, of God's people. So the, the right. same idea here, we are presenting this to you, O Lord, and then what does God do? He always turns it around 
and gives it right back to us for for our benefit. Another another practice right. that maybe has a similar idea, even if not the same motion of of this, is is one that's been brought up previously on an episode concerning Leviticus. Is where th- there were times in the church's history where part of the offerings were actually bread and wine, and yeah. then that bread and wine was used in the Lord's Supper. So there you have again the idea of of we present these gifts to God, but he turns them right around for our benefit. Right. It's always about God providing for his people, right? And us keeping that in mind that where did we get these things from first? Um, No, I I absolutely agree. And yeah, that idea of the offering um, being presented before the altar and then placed on the altar to show, yep, and now it's going to come back to serve. Yeah, a beautiful connection there. Um, And we see that still, yeah, all these sorts of things. But here, the meat, specifically the the breast and then the right thigh, so I guess the stronger leg. I don't know uh, if an animal, if it works that way, but these were God's portion for those serving in that priestly office. This was how they were compensated for their work. Uh, this is very much like our practice to, of tithing today. Pastor salaries and the upkeep of the congregation buildings are collected from the offerings collected in our services. Uh, it's not necessarily meat in bread. It's the currency we use to get our meat in bread. But um, one thing, and as you were saying, with the bread and wine being offered as the offering, one thing I've learned in North Dakota is there are still some instances of people giving their offerings, their tithes, in commodities. So I've I've heard of cattle farmers donating a whole cow for the pastor's family uh, or to be auctioned off on behalf of the congregation. Um, and I've heard of people setting aside grain or corn as their tithe after the market is done with its its processing of it. We're not so far away from the Old Testament practices as we sometimes think. Even today, three and a half millennia after the Exodus, we still model our habits after the word God has handed down for his people. As beautiful having such lasting continuity and connection with God's people throughout time. We, we see these same things enacted today. Okay, so then as this chapter concludes, you do see a bit of a transition tar- starting to take place here, even in the, the language that's used in those last couple of verses. We see a, a bit of a summarizing function that covers these first seven chapters before we move on to a, a bit of narrative, really, in chapter mm-hmm. 8 and following. So take us into this conclusion of, of not only chapter 7, but really the first seven chapters of, of Leviticus, verses 37 and 38. Right, so we see that uh, formulaic introduction of the offerings. This time it's actually closing, sort of an epilogue, a a tag at the end. Uh, We're done giving the instructions now. This this portion is closed. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering. Closing them all together. Um, It's reiterating that all of these or instructions for the interaction between God and his people. It also, it, so it relists the offerings that God has laid out and reminds them that they are important part of their lives. As you've just heard all this instruction, remember, you just heard all this. We told it to you. We told you what we were going to tell you. We told you, and now we're telling you again. Uh, remember it. It's important. And then it also uh, reminds us that this was given to Moses from the mouth of Yahweh. That's what he is giving to Moses to give to the people so they would have a way of approaching God, that they'd be able uh, to 
have an, as, uh, an avenue to be granted forgiveness, to experience the blessings that God is going to provide in their lives. And then it even gives us a timestamp in history for when it all took place. They would remember their time at Sinai. They would remember their time in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt and before entering the promised land. They can point back and say, yes, Leviticus, we remember that was handed down at this time to this generation of people, and we can keep it going. And so they close this whole section by sort of instilling it in the minds again by that repetitious, um, uh, formulaic experience expression of what's happening. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the emphasis here that it is from the mouth of the Lord. This is yes. the Lord's word. That's been a, a key feature throughout the book of Leviticus, which is easy to overlook because it is, you know, it is so much speaking and instructions. The fact, though, that Moses on multiple occasions reminds the people, this is the Lord telling Moses what to do and what to say is a key feature in Leviticus so that it isn't just a, you know, a dry book but it actually is that very living and active Word of God. And, and then, as you said, that, that this is the Lord graciously calling His people into His presence to receive His gift of holiness through these means that He is establishing. Again, I, I think that helps us as we seek to read the book of Leviticus as Christians today, uh, to receive it not as that book that we would just skip over when we happen to get to it in our year-long Bible reading plan, but, but rather as a book that is one that, that's full of grace and, and hope and, and God's love for us as his people. So with, with some of those thoughts in mind, and, and again, concluding this chapter and really this section of Leviticus, have about eight minutes here on the morning, uh, Pastor Jones. Help us with some, some thoughts, some applications on, on this chapter, and, and really a lot of things we've talked about from Leviticus as a whole today. Yeah. Well, you kind of brought part of it forward, you know, as, do I really have to read Leviticus, you know, if, if we're going through Bible study. I think if if you ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, I think Leviticus appears last. Uh, it'd probably be an okay bet. Um, so much of it just seems unrecognizably distant from us, right? Wandering in the wilderness, sacrifices, a giant tent for worship, rituals for cleanliness, the, the, the vastness and the specificity of these ordinances and rites dictated down even to the hand motions, right? Um, the timeline for eating it, all of it just seems so totally different from our 21st century uh, experience in America. So people's reticence to dig into Leviticus, I think it's understandable. However, when we look at these things, as we've done today, as you've been doing with all these other weeks in, in the book, we, we start to see the purposes for which God instituted them. We, and we see echoes of them in our current worship practices and settings. I mean, if we go through the divine service, it's set up as an opportunity for God to deliver his blessings to his people. And in the Levitical offerings, the people are seeking God's forgiveness, his pardon, his grace, his steadfast, unfailing love, however you want to describe it. And that's the same thing that we're doing in our divine services. It's him serving us, right? We, we use that pun sometimes to explain it. You know, in both instances, we have features to help us acknowledge our uncleanliness, our sinfulness, and to be cleansed by God's forgiveness. The Old Testament used the sacrifice with the blood and the fat to show that repentance. The acceptance of the offering by the Lord through the priest showed the restoration of the relationship with God. And then the communal consumption of the sacrificed meal, at least in the case of the thank offering, in included a singing of people's gratitude and eating together of God's 
provision, including that of unleavened bread. So we should think Passover, right? Um, but then in our modern settings for worship, we almost always open with confession and absolution, right? We approach God as repentant sinners and seek his forgiveness. We acknowledge our uncleanliness, if you will, and ask to be made worthy of the Lord's presence. And we have a few other pieces with prayer and the word, similar to things that are happening in the tabernacle. And then we collect our offerings, which are almost always monetary these days, but it's in response to God's love and provision. And then we gather around a meal of sacrificial blood and unleavened bread while singing songs of thanksgiving. I mean, we call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist because it's a thanksgiving meal. We celebrate a new fulfillment of the Old Testament thank offering when we're in worship together. So echoes for sure. But even more than that is that fulfillment of Old Testament laws in our communion meal. The difference stemming from and finding its purpose in God himself as the Christ, the promised Messiah. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, all of the ordinances in Leviticus are pointing to that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. God himself, God the Son, becomes the sacrifice. He sheds his blood to atone for our sins. He offers up his flesh to be given as the meal of reparation. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, it is a reversal of that prohibition of drinking blood. The life of the animal is in the blood. This was reserved for God alone as the most holy part of the sacrifice. But now he reverses it. Out of divine love and mercy, God commands us to drink his sacrificed blood and eat his sacrificed flesh so that we receive his holiness. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. The life is in the blood. In our eating and drinking at the Lord's table, he provides a participation in his eternal life. We eat a thanksgiving meal in communion with God and the members of his family. So the sacrifices and rituals of Leviticus, they may not carry over to our modern experiences with their physical actions and, and we are no longer obligated for this to sacrifice the animals or grain, but that is because all of them are pointing forward to the full embodiment of God's love demonstrated in the self-sacrifice of Christ. It is in that loving ritual of the crucifixion and resurrection that we do participate in the thanksgiving offering with all of God's people across all time. So we are joined together by and receive all of our provisions from God's unfathomable love in Christ Jesus. His life is in the blood, which is given and shed for you. So that, that connection there to the blood there at the end, and I love all the connections that you made to the divine service, to what our Lord has done through the ministry yes. of Jesus Christ, but that, that thought of the blood, especially there at the end, just thinking through what we've read so far in the book of Leviticus, and even in this chapter, it, you sometimes forget just what this would have looked like and how much blood there really would have been. If you <laughs> go through all these yeah. sacrifices, and just, I mean, thinking about, and we talked a little bit about this on a previous episode where it talked a little bit about the washing of the priestly garments should blood spatter on them. I mean, that had to happen all the time. You see, you think about just how much right. blood was shed here for the forgiveness of sins. And and that's, I mean, you go to the book of Hebrews about the shedding of blood being necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And over and over again, on a daily basis, multiple times a day, 
there is blood that is being shed every time pointing us forward to that right. once and final sacrifice so that so that now we in the divine service we receive the fruit of that once and final sacrifice from our Lord Jesus Christ his right. own blood that has been shed all of all of the blood of the bulls and the goats the rams the turtle doves that we've heard described so far all of it finds its fulfillment in that blood of our right. Lord Jesus Christ the very divine blood of God that has been shed for us and and when you get there then you have the fulfillment all, of all of this and so i mean i think you know again reflecting on these seven chapters ones that as you pointed out just don't show up often or at all in our lectionary on sunday mornings what should we take from this we should see a preaching of the sacrifice that christ has made for us to give us life to give us holiness that we yes. now receive in, in the lord's supper absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah, so fantastic news, a book of grace, the book of Leviticus, even through these first seven chapters, <laughs> ones that we don't often read, all these sacrifices pointing us to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Rick Jones is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 to 38. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Always appreciate being here, Pastor Apple. What a fantastic book of the Bible that we have in the book of Leviticus, as the Lord graciously provides for his people to receive his holiness through these sacrifices, so that instead of their life being forfeit for their sins, the Lord provides a substitute. And he has provided that substitute for you and for me, ultimately, fully, in his Son, Jesus Christ, whose blood is shed for us in our place to give us his life as we receive him now in his body and his blood in his holy sacrament. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this section of Leviticus, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also download the KFUO app and use the open mic feature there to send a message to us. In either case, we always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.